welcome to Focused on Life, where we'll be laser focused on all things that have to do with defending human dignity, human rights, and yes, human life at every stage and phase of development. I am your host, Uju. And I am your other host, Matt. And we are thrilled to be here today. Hello, Matt. Hi, Uju. How are you doing for this or on this third episode of Focused on Life? Matt, I am so excited because not only have we done this once, we've done it twice. And here we are at that time. So, (laughs) (laughs) So we're really doing it. It's official. Our podcast has taken off and yet we are showing up each time to record an episode. And that's right. what fun I'm having. What fun I'm having in that's this right. conversation. This, this episode's gonna be uh it's gonna be pretty good, I think. Uh we're gonna touch on some of our origin stories, why we got involved. We're yeah. gonna try to focus a bit on your origin story, and you know, you origin story, <laughs> it's like you're a superhero, right? <laughs> my Uju's origin story from <laughs> average citizen to superhero. But, oh my goodness. Um, but uh, no, I think everyone, uh, for, for those of you who are pro-life or at least involved in the movement, every one of us has a story of what, what was the catalyst? What, what, what made us uh, decide to stand up, speak out, uh, and kind of get involved on a more active level? So uh, we're going to discuss uh, that, and then we'll jump into a whole bunch of issues, right? Yeah, Ujim? absolutely. A whole bunch of issues, Matt. So origin story here we come <laughs> here we come and and you've probably seen uh, in the description of episode three entitled how the gates foundation made me pro-life what is that about <laughs> i you know, know the gates foundation what <laughs> how what how, how could that possibly be but you know uju the the two of us we, we grew up on in completely two different worlds okay but yeah. you know we have very similarities in our upbringing we both come from uh, Catholic families. Uh, we both were taught in the faith about all things life and family. Yeah. Um, uh, I, you know, I've been uh, pretty much pro-life my whole life, uh, even though I wasn't active uh, or like an activist per se. Yeah. Uh, I always knew abortion was wrong. I, I always uh, stood up for traditional family uh, for, uh, for all these things. Uh, but, it, you know, I wasn't really doing anything about it other than just believing it. What about yeah. you? My, I was raised, of course, as you said, in Nigeria, in a, you know, in a Catholic family. But even in my family, I think it was taken for granted. This society that I came from really believed in the defense, defending human life at every stage and phase of development. So if a woman is pregnant, where I come from, this is a precious thing. This is something to always praise God for. This is something to always thank God for. Um, no matter how poor, no matter how rich, no matter how unexpected that baby is. Um, so I've come from a, a society where when you say abortion is wrong, someone be like, is there anybody who doesn't know it? It's like saying killing some, you know, shooting somebody in the head is wrong. That's exactly how it's taken. I remember towards the beginning of my pro-life activism, um, one of my aunties in Nigeria, like I come from this large extended family because my dad has like seven, six siblings. So there's seven in the family and I have all these aunties and uncles, a huge, huge family. And, you know, we're all in contact. Everyone is in everybody's business. So of course, once I started doing pro-life work, everybody knew what I was doing. And then one of my aunts, 
one of my aunties now called me and said, oh, what is this thing you're doing? You know, what? I said, auntie, it's pro-life. She said, what does it mean? <laughs> I didn't even know the word pro-life. I said, I'm just going around making speeches, telling people that we should defend the unborn, that abortion is wrong. And she said, does anybody not know that? I said, auntie, yes, in Nigeria, everybody knows, but they're not in the UK. <laughs> so it's, um, it's something that I think we, we took for granted where I came from, because pretty much the laws protect the unborn as well as the society naturally. Um, and as I had mentioned before, my, I'm even speaking with you, I have said this quite often. We know what abortion is. When I went to high school or secondary school, I was in a boarding school, a girls, a girls boarding school, um, which kind of sounds a bit funny, I know now, but it's it's a pretty in Nigeria, it's a pretty common thing. So while I was in, in school, around the age of 15, 16, you know, once girls start talking about things like getting pregnant and, and all of that, it's it hovers just on the edge that, you know, there's some, this thing called abortion. When you get pregnant, I mean, some, some people could go in hiding and have this thing called an abortion to get rid of your problem, quote unquote. But the moment we've got to learn that, that possibility or that concept of abortion, we learned it as a vice. So we always got to know there's this thing called abortion, but yeah, it's actually a terrible thing. It's actually an abomination, you know? So this is 15 year old girls, 14 year old girls learning this. I was not, you know, I didn't go to a, a religious school. It wasn't a Catholic school, an Anglican school. This was just a regular school, public school, if you like, but it was a boarding, even it was a boarding school. So before somebody says, oh yeah, you are pro-life or you're against abortion because your religion says you should be against abortion. No, but the society I came from, even within the public school systems, even among our teachers, even in the school authority and school administration, we, we got to learn that this thing called abortion actually destroys human lives. So yes, I think that's where my background and yours would vary because Whereas, yes, we come from a similar type of family that we know wrong from right and understand abortion is actually a human wrong, not right. Um, but we grew up in, in two different societies and the society I came from took it for granted. Um, I think we all took it for granted because the society I came from just had it built in or woven into society that, yeah, this sort of life is, is wrong because you're destroying another human being. Yeah, it's it's interesting as if uh, it's like, what is even the term pro-life? Even that term yeah. would have been foreign to you because like, what do you mean pro? Like, isn't everyone in favor of, you know, life? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. My, my aunties didn't know what it was. <laughs> like who, who would who who is in favor of killing someone? Right. Like that, that's, exactly. that just doesn't make any sense. You know, it's interesting because uh, growing up in, I mean, most of my life I've been in Canada and um, uh, my whole life, I've lived in a country where uh, it it was a complete opposite, right? Where yeah. abortion was, you know, technically the law of the land, even though there is no legal protection for children in the womb in Canada, uh, and there hasn't been since 1988. Um, uh, and even previously, the, the abortion law uh, that was passed in 1969 had a lot of problems with it, and uh, abort it was pretty much abortion on demand anyways. So my whole life, I've lived in a society yes. where people did talk about abortion as if it's a good thing. And I remember my first introduction into the pro-life movement 
was actually going to do life chain with my family. I was about seven or eight years old. And we just had life chain in Canada and America uh, just a few weeks ago. Yes. And to me, I was already, I was forced to be exposed to what an abortion is at such an early age. And I think that's just, it's so unfortunate that young children need to know about this. But the truth is, it's happening in our country. It's happening everywhere. Kids are talking about it already, right? It's not just a high school thing or a college university thing. Kids are talking about it and they're repeating these, you know, slogans like my body, my choice, abortion's a human right. They're saying these things already in grade school. So I guess, yeah, that's the difference. That's our, you know, the difference that we have uh, in our upbringing is that unfortunately I was forced to have to uh, learn about abortion at an early age. And and I had to start defending that that's not what we should be supporting, right? Yes, Whereas in, in your society, in your culture, in your community, it was almost like everyone understood that it's bad, right? Yes, people still did it, but it, people did it as a bad thing. As a you bad know. thing, that's right. It's that's a right. vice, it's a social vice and cultural vice even. So since I was an a pro-life activist, technically, since I was seven or eight years old, after that first life came, yeah. <laughs> I, I was officially introduced into the pro-life movement. Um, what when what happened to you? When did you, for the first time, realize, okay, you know what? I think I need to speak up. I need to stand up about something because something is just, it's not making sense and I need to do something about it. So what was yeah. that like for you? Right. So my, honestly, we're talking about abortion now as how you got into the movement, but it wasn't technically, it wasn't actually abortion that got me to stand up and say, okay, enough is enough. I am going to kind of wake up from my slumber, start learning about these issues so that I can speak from a point of knowledge. So this was um, about... 12 years ago now, 11, about 11 or 12 years ago, um, I was uh, already here in the United Kingdom. Of course, I had gone through secondary school and university in Nigeria, finished my degree in Nigeria, and then came over to the UK to do my master's in London. So while I was doing that master's, um, I was looking for a job. So it was I was very, very fortunate to have gotten a very good place as a specialist biomedical scientist at a hospital, started working. And at that point, Matt, I honestly thought I was flying. I mean, um, just on my own in the UK, living my life, having a good career. I didn't need to go mess that up. <laughs> All right. So I had just really much privilege, I would say, in the way I was able to settle into the society here in the United Kingdom. And at that point, I was already priding myself of having good knowledge of the culture from whence I came. So I had lived in Nigeria, been raised in Nigeria, been educated in Nigeria, and lived even as an adult in Nigeria, because already by the time I came to the UK, I was in my mid-20s. So I understood very well the culture I came from. And then I had, by the time I, you know, I'm about 11 years ago at this point, I had also lived in the United Kingdom about uh, six years. So I also was priding myself of understanding the Western culture and the society that I was living in. So I felt, oh, I, I have the best of both worlds. I have a good understanding of the African cultures, at least the, the African culture that I come from. And then at this point, I know and understand everything I need to know about the UK and living here, working as a scientist, being independent. So I also had somewhere within my brain, <laughs> this 
basic understanding that um, the my career progression from being a scientist in the UK, I was very open to the possibility of um, even working for an organization like the World Health Organization. In fact, at that time, we had just, if anybody remembers what was happening in the world at that time, there had been the, um, the earthquakes, the massive earthquakes in Haiti. So it was plastered all over the news, wall to wall, um, what was happening in Haiti and the aid um, efforts that were going on in Haiti at the time. So I was even looking into possibility of volunteering, going to Haiti as a scientist, being a part of one of the organizations like the World Health Organization. So all these international organizations were very much on my radar at the time, but I had them on a, this huge pedestal. And this understanding that this is an amazing thing, the Gates Foundation, you know, there were all these international organizations that were doing international work that I was interested in. So on this very day, I was um, uh, watching the TV on my television was on um, and I noticed an interview by the wife of Bill Gates. Well, at the time, the wife of Bill Gates, the world does change. Melinda Gates is no longer the wife of Bill Gates. Anybody that knows what's going on, uh, you know, on social media or on, you know, in the inter on the international scene. But at the time, you know, Melinda Gates, um, the wife of Bill Gates at the time was being interviewed on CNN. So I thought, oh, they do great international work, honestly. So I came to that news with a very open mind, very neutral mind. There's less someone says, well, you were so biased, so you heard what you wanted to hear. No, I came with the mind of this Nigerian scientist um, thinking of the possibility of doing international work. So I, I increased the volume and I was trying to, to listen to what they were questioning her about. And I was very surprised, Matt, because she was talking about this huge summit that she was a part of that was happening in the Lon in in London at the time, um, in collaboration with the then Prime Minister uh, here in the UK, and uh, it was the Family Planning Summit. It was a huge summit, and so I was thinking, what? This is meant to be international aid. What are they talking about? So I'm just now sitting intently listening and getting angrier the more I listened because she was telling the person who was interviewing her, well, the African women need their contraception. Um, you know, she said she went to Africa, one of the African countries, and they were sitting, in fact, it was particularly Kenya that she mentioned, and she said she was sitting down with some women in this slum outside of Nairobi called Kurogocho. And she was asking the women there, what do you want me to do for you? And then one of the women said, if there's anything we want from you right now, it's to give us contraception so that we'll stop having children. I thought in my mind that my, you know, this is, this is mind blowing. You know, this is, this is terrible to hear because just listening to her, I felt this cannot be true. This, I mean, this woman definitely cannot be telling the truth. Why? Because I come from this kind of community that if you were somebody who had money, came from the West and you come into an African village or an African town or an African city, you gather women around and you say, tell us what you want the most at this time. Um, the African women are not shy. If uh, the African women and men are not shy, if I went to my village today and I gathered my so my relatives who are in the village and I say, what do you want me to do for you? You would hear things 
like, you know, my child has not uh, been able to go back to school because we don't have school fees to pay. Uh, we have this outstanding hospital bill. We're trying to, you know, build up our house before the rainy season comes. We're trying to update our roof before the rainy season comes. We're trying to go to the farms, but then we have this challenge or that challenge, you know. So there are all these things that I knew would be the long list of things that a typical African woman would be asking for. And here this American uh, philanthropist was sitting, uh, you know, on this CNN interview, telling this kind of story. And then she said, because of that particular conversation she had, she decided that her legacy was going to be the family planning project that she was going to bring to these women. So that really got me mad. And I always say this when I go to give this talk and, you know, if I share the story at conferences, people will laugh because, you know, the next thing I did, my I threw my remote control at the television. You know, <laughs> it was like a full burst of, of, of temper. You know, so I was like, how could she be saying this? So I was so bothered that night that I sat up very late at night and started to write the reasons why. And, you know, my mind works like the mind of a scientist. Like when I remember something, I have to kind of jot it down, note it down in bullet points. So I start to write down the reasons why it is detrimental for a Western philanthropist to come in. And at that time, she was trying to raise five billion with a B, five billion dollars. Why this is a terrible project for the African people. So I started to write it, Matt, and, you know, six hours later, I was still awake, <laughs> still, still writing this, this particular thing. And then it became an article. Um, and then I entitled it An Open Letter to Melinda Gates. I sent it out that night. I didn't even know who I was going to send it to because I didn't intend to write an article. I was just out of my head. Things were flowing out, the emotions. And this was born out of my my situation that I had been born and raised in the African, you know, in, in an African country, um, you know, I understood exactly what it meant to be an African living in Africa. But I also at this point in time, I had, I had taken in a, enough of my experiences from the Western world. And I was speaking really from the African point of view, cultural point of view, anthropological point of view, and also scientific point of view, being an African scientist as well, uh, just enumerating all the reasons why not. So I tried to send it to someone. And the only thing that came to my mind as a, as a good Catholic girl was just EWTN. Like, you know, I was like, who will I, where will I find an ally? I didn't know about organizations like CLC or even any pro-life organization. I just thought I'll send it to EWTN. And then I sent it to the to Teresa Tomio, who, you know, I didn't even know at the time, but I knew she had a show. So she then read it, which was very shocking to me, Matt. She read this and, you know, miracles just started happening immediately because once she read it, somebody was sitting somewhere and they listened to her show uh, and then picked it, you know, picked it up and decided we need to publish this. So they contacted Teresa Tomio and Teresa Tomio then tried to get back to me. The long and short of it, Matt, is that that went viral. That open letter went viral, has now been read by millions of people around the world because it was eventually translated by so many. Um, so that was exactly how I got to, into the pro-life movement. Um, and and it once my letter went viral, how these things happen is that you then sit down and think, uh-oh, did I just get myself into trouble here? Because people are, people are asking for me. It's like, who wrote this? You need to come and explain yourself. And this was a very long letter. Um, so I decided I'm going to start learning about the issues right away because of course once you're called up to 
explain yourself why you're giving these reasons um, for which, you know, the Gates Foundation shouldn't be raising $5 billion for contraception or family planning across the continent of Africa. Why? I needed to, to speak from a place of knowledge. So I started reading about the United Nations that I loved at that point, and I was open to working for the World Health Organization. I had to understand their position on these issues, on population control, on contraception, on the so-called family planning and the, how they're rolling it out in places like the, the African continent. I had to learn about abortion. I had to learn about the laws and the, you know, the, the stance of every African country on abortion. Then I, I started also taking in what was going on in the West and, and then came to this whole realization that was there was this thing that was coming up to me at least as I was seeing it with a bigger view a bigger picture this thing called cultural imperialism or later when I wrote about it as ideological neocolonialism and the more I went down this rabbit hole mat the deeper it got so that's really how I got into this and this is my origin story <laughs> well that and, and and ladies and gentlemen and that is how <laughs> The Gates Foundation made Uju pro-life. <laughs> what a what an incredible story. And I, I have two comments to make. Number one, I just uh, sometimes, you know, I, I sometimes things happen in your life yeah. where you just realize you didn't plan for it. No. They just happen. And you say, I have to respond to this. I have to act. Okay. And you acted. And look what's happened ever since then. You decided to take that moment. And say, I have to do something because it's what I feel like it's the right thing to do. And I have to speak the truth. Right. Yeah. And so I thought that's that's awesome. And then secondly, I have to ask you, because I, I, too, uh, felt, you know, I, I grew up uh, through the Canadian educational system. But like the United Nations is like the most beautiful thing ever. It's like everyone's holding hands, singing Kumbaya, you know, everyone's <laughs> arms are linked and we we're all one people united, you know. And, and then, of course, once you start looking at the history of the United Nations and, and a lot of the failures that they've, uh, you know, a lot of the failed objectives and that there's still a lot of war happening around the world and, and hunger and all these real problems are taking place. You start to realize, like, wait a minute, like, what is this whole UN thing really about and what's exactly. happening here? What was that like for you, for someone who, uh, who, who graduated in the sciences? Uh, you're dealing and you work in the healthcare world, yeah. and then you have this, uh, this, this, um, you know, this, this preconception of the UN as being something like a good thing, like a reference point for all things good and moral. And then you start unpacking, you know, bit by bit. What was that like for you? That type of almost culture shock. Matt, it was so heartbreaking because, as I said, I really thought my high aim at that point was get all the good experiences from working as a scientist in the healthcare industry in the UK, but then using that internationally, you know, to do some good, to influence things in different countries, you know, to bring real healthcare to people in, in far-flung places. So I was heartbroken to have discovered that these people care little to nothing for these issues that you just mentioned. So the war is happening, the hunger that continues, the fact that there are so many societies that are very much um, suffering under all kinds of injustices. So it's like, 
the United Nations cares nothing. The Gates Foundation is like, they go to a place like a slum in Kenya. And what you're hearing is this one woman who may or may not have told you that all she wants is contraception. Can't you look around and see that this place where you're sitting probably might not even have clean drinking water running in this community. This Korogocho is a slum. So definitely you look around and you probably see you know, all kinds of inadequacies in electricity provision, in the access to education, in the access to clean drinking water, in access to basic basic medicines in this community where you're sitting. And all Melinda Gates hears is give us, you know, family plan or contraception for which she then went to raise $5 billion that, by the way, could have been used for all kinds of things. So it's heartbreaking for me to have discovered this, to know that, you know, my aim of going to one international organization to go do some good in Africa, where I come from, it's now been dashed forever because those organizations that I was looking at, they, you know, they, they sincerely don't exist. I mean, they're there, but they're, they're not there as what I thought them to be. The World Health Organization is not really in all honesty, if you look at if you look or see some of the horrible things that they're championing, they are really not that shining city on a hill that I thought yeah. it was. And the the you know the home for for all scientists or, or medical personnel who who have the the you know the the these lofty intentions of going to help people in in on the privileged uh, societies around the world. Yeah, and and you know what the, I mean. The truth is. Yes, we, the two of us, uh, will most likely be very critical of the United Nations over the course of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Without a doubt, we have our serious reservations about that organization. However, the truth is, um, and I think this is the major problem, is that they do, you know, there are a lot of programs and campaigns and agencies of the United Nations that go into uh, various countries and whether it's uh, natural uh, natural disasters or war, they go in and they do provide clean water and they yes. do provide uh, you know sanitation and food and medicine. But the problem is they do that with this type of ideological agenda, which means we're, we will go into these countries and we will help them build and rebuild and, and bring some uh, some access to clean water and nutrition. But at the same time, we will be handing out millions of condoms and we will be sterilizing their women in the name of yeah. population control. And yeah. one and, and, of, and obviously we will be working with our pro-abortion organizations who will be setting up, you know, healthcare clinics where they will then go ahead and kill unborn babies. Right. In the name of. Uh, humanitarian aid and relief and all this stuff. And I think that is that is the ma- the biggest problem because yeah. why can't they just stick to helping people? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> why, exactly. Why can't they just stick to trying to bring peace and order in the world by helping to empower uh, people from different parts of the world to kind of uh, become self-sustainable to to you know to invest in them and allow them exactly. to do what's best for them and their countries. But instead, it's like all this good stuff uh, is is being sent. But then, along with it, they're sending all this evil, all these evil things. Well, precisely, Matt. Precisely, this is it. And and you did say we're going to be critical about about the United Nations, um, you know. But as I remember clearly, Matt, that we met at the United Nations. So people will think we're being so harsh. Why are we being so harsh to the UN and saying these things, you know, that are critical of the United Nations is because you and I, Matt, 
have been going to the UN for at least there was a period of time where we were going to the UN probably every year. And that was exactly where we met. Do you want to say how we met, Matt? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think we, we hinted at this in the previous uh, one of our previous two episodes. But yeah, I think so. We were was, specific, though. We So we met, um, we both attended uh, the International Commission on Population and Development, which is an annual conference at the UN. Uh, which uh, was first started off, uh, I I think the inaugural conference was in Cairo in 1994. And, you know, if you read those original documents, uh, what what becomes very clear is that uh, one of the top priorities of the population conference was that uh, we need to depopulate the world because the world is overpopulated. (laughs) Right. And and um, which, of course, uh, we disagree with that notion. Uh, however, uh, this conference brought in uh, leaders and experts and governments, and 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 they all discussed ways of, um, uh, you know, dealing with this population crisis that's happening in the world. And one of the ways they they decided to uh, kind of address this uh, quote unquote problem is through birth control, abortion, sterilization. And in the last twenty and so and twenty twenty five years. These conferences have been taking place every year at the UN and sometimes in other parts of the world. And um, yes, and we went to this conference at the UN back in, geez, was it 2013, 2012? I don't remember. 2014. It was April of 2014. And I I was just looking through my pictures um, on my iPhone today and I saw this picture that we took back in, <laughs> you know, and we looked so funny that's like all these years ago and Matt, you looked so young, by the way, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all the way back then. But that was actually um, the 2014 ICPD. And it for me, I don't know how it was for you, Matt, but for me, it was such an eye opener because we were going from one event to another, from one meeting to another. This, Mind you, this is a week long of events. Um, so there were the main conference events or main Congress events. And then there would be the side, the so-called side events that were hosted by various nations and, uh, and NGOs. So we were attending these um, side events where we would sit down, listen to a talk. And then sometimes we try to ask questions. And for each of those meetings that we went to, Matt, it was just more and more heartbreaking and thinking, this is it for me. So I would never work at the United Nations. I could never, ever try to apply to the World Health Organization, you know, because each one that we went to, you find someone advocating openly, obviously, shamelessly for things like abortion, for things like contraception. And sometimes it's even targeted towards young people. So it it was quite interesting. But meeting you there, I, I felt it was quite encouraging to meet yourself as well as some other pro-life people who had come to this meeting. Uh, and I thought to myself, okay, at least there are a few other people who believe in, in the sorts of things that we believe in. And we were all scandalized by this. And I remember, you know, you trying to ask questions or some, some sort of question or make a comment at the end of some event and you were shut down. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And it wasn't even being shut down. I remember... Um, you know, we talk about the UN and we came into this, uh, I came into this conference thinking, wow, the UN is a great place. Let's see how I can contribute, you know? And then you go, (laughs) you go to all these side events and these other high level panel discussions. And it's like every single meeting you're going to or event you're going to is 
focus on how can we uh, you know bring more abortion access to the every single corner of the world how can we depopulate the world how can we eradicate poverty by yeah. eradicating the poor you know i mean they don't use those words they use words like sexual reproductive health women's empowerment gender equality but really ultimately is uh, uh, the, the number one solution to world poverty and world hunger is by killing off the world so there are less mouths to feed right which which imagine telling your auntie about this <laughs> what what would she think what would she think right uh, but it's my aunties like there's plural and they're all pro-life without actually knowing the word pro-life <laughs> that's right that's right and and so we were just like my eyes were opened to how serious this issue was and thankfully thank god there have been people working at the UN, good, solid champions of life and family working at the UN ever since. Uh, I mean, you know, you know, John Paul II, St. John Paul II, Mother Teresa, these two uh, uh, wonderful, uh, holy people were were outspoken about this. They saw what was coming, right? At they Cairo. saw what was coming. Yeah, after at Cairo. Cairo. Yeah, they saw, and, they saw what happened at Cairo and they invited pro-life people to And they invited pro-life people. That's right. They invited yeah. pro-life organizations to get involved. And we are such a minority there. And I remember at that one meeting, I don't know if you're at that final uh, closing plenary session, Uju, but... Uh, I remember, you know, uh, it's like one statement after another. It's all pro-abortion rhetoric, pro-abortion this, pro-abortion this. I was there. I was there. And I remember uh, the Holy See, which is an observer at the United Nations. They delivered uh, a, a really good, powerful statement alongside some other countries. Surprise, surprise. Those countries were mainly African countries because those were really yeah. the only ones <laughs> still, you know, standing up for the right to life. But I remember the Holy See uh, representatives read out a statement, which was phenomenal. And it was uh, uh, just very life-affirming. And I just remember uh, people in the auditorium, in the whole room, started yeah. booing and That's heckling right. the speaker from the Holy See. And I thought to myself, am I at the United Nations? <laughs> or am I like in a high school cafeteria? I couldn't yeah. believe it. I could not believe what I just experienced. Yeah, Matt, that's it. That's it for me. One of the days, I think, after one of those meetings and or one of the plenary sessions, I just had to run out and run to the closest parish, Catholic parish. There. And I, I remember just kneeling on the floor and just weeping because it was too much emotionally for me to, for me to take. But also, I think it, re it, it strengthened my resolve because, mind you, I was coming out from this whole experience with the Gates Foundation. And then at that point, I was still on the learning curve. And that was the reason why, you know, when, when a friend invited me to come to the United Nations for the ICPD that year, I said, oh, this will be part of my learning experience. So, uh, you know, after that, I really, really resolved to, to do this and do this well, as well as I could. You know, um, the fact that the Western nations are standing on the one side with their ideology so firmly rooted in this idea of the so-called sexual and reproductive health and rights. And then there were the African nations who were trying, as well as, you know, like observer an observer country or observer status um, nation like, like the Holy See there at the UN, giving the life-affirming side of things. But mind you, the most powerful ones are the Western countries. The most powerful ones are the ones who are the donor nations at the end of the day. Uh, and I, you see that power imbalance so clearly on the international, you know, at an international forum, um, just like the United Nations. Yeah, and and what you see is, uh, and you and you had mentioned this earlier. You see 
uh, cultural imperialism, you see ideological colonialism taking place right in front of you. And and so, okay, I'm going to pitch your book once again in your documentary because <laughs> you've, you've, you've written about this. Uh, you've done a documentary about this, uh, Strings Attached and Target Africa. And we will include links to both the documentary and the book uh, below in our uh, on our podcast website. However, you know, that's really was that uh, was that first CPD kind of like the inspiration behind why you felt like you really need to go after these particular two issues. Like, I mean, it's the same thing, but this particular issue of uh, ideological neocolonialism. Absolutely. I mean, it was the ICPD, as well as the other events I started going to at the UN, which will be the CSW, which we're going to talk even more about in subsequent episodes, when hopefully we would have guests, at least a guest for, who, who does a lot of work at the United Nations. And, so and the, if, I, if I could just interrupt, the CSW is the Commission uh, on the Status, the of, status women, of Women, which is, That's again, right. one of those other annual conferences that takes place at the UN. Go ahead, you sorry that's about right. That. So no, but that's right, because we did agree, Matt, for this podcast, we should get people familiar with these terms like ICPD, you know, the CSW. What does it mean? Um, how often does it happen? When does it happen? People need to know this as well as they they understand what happens in their own countries, because this concerns you. Even if you don't know what's happening at the UN, the UN is happening in your name, whatever country you come from, your own country is represented there. So it's good that you should know what your country is doing at the Commission on the Status of Women, which is the United Nations event, a major United Nations event, in fact, that occurs once a year. So it was just when I, I started going for from the ICPD, then other ICPDs, as well as CSW events each year at the UN um, for a number of years, it you know, each year I got more. I got more angry each year. I got more alarmed um, and, and more, I'd say more resolved to, to keep doing this, to keep, you know, to keep learning, but also to start then looking at this issue from the lens of an African woman and what, what they're saying here in a UN plenary or a UN side event, what, how does it translate to the lives of the everyday person living in an African country, for example? And how does it translate in the everyday lives of somebody living in a Western country? So I started learning, I started writing about it, I started putting out articles. And then with time, I was able to start um, writing out what then eventually became the documentary, which was one particular investigation that I had to get into for not a, a United Nations organization this time, but this was an abortion organization that had been doing a lot of work in different African countries called Marie Stopes International. They've changed their name now since they found out that Marie Stopes was a well-known eugenicist of her time. So they call themselves MSI um, Reproductive Choices, I think. So they've now changed their name to remove Marie Stoves um, from the name of the organization. But of course, like most of these abortion organizations, IPPF being one of them, International Planned Parenthood Federation, their founders, if you take the, the if you try to, to trace that their founders, they usually will be people who would have been rooted very deeply in the eugenicist movement of their own time, um, like Margaret Sanger. 
and Mary Stopes. So I started doing the investigation on what they were doing in different African countries, the scandals they were involved in, and that became this um, documentary, Strings Attached. And uh, you know, around the same time as well, I had been writing different articles and, and different thoughts and different reflections of things I was learning, the African diplomats that I had been meeting at the UN from year to year. Um, the various investigations that I had been involved in, just trying to trace where funding was coming and go, coming from and going to, and how it was really translating into the regular lives of people and various communities in Africa, reading various things from different African countries and traveling to various African countries. Yes, and that, you know, all those things I had written then became known as the book, Target Africa. So that's really um, where I, I started from and, and where I still am now is just with the knowledge of everything that I have learned, that just doesn't go away, Matt. It doesn't go away because you find out that these people, you know, these uh, philanthropists like the Gates, um, the various Western nations that have come with ideology, they know what they're doing, Matt. They come with a blueprint and they are very faithful to their blueprint and going by their playbook one after the other. They don't even have time to wait and listen, you know, or to see what the Africans think or what, you know, whoever thinks or, or God forbid, what the pro-life people in their countries think. They go ahead and in the name of these Western countries, they are there giving up money, doing stuff for the things they want and the things they believe in. And that's also where I came up with this other term that I have also kind of shared at various times, the philanthropic racism. It's a kind of racism, which is acceptable. I know the word racism is kind of a buzzword now, but imagine the fact that these people are given funding just for the, you know, mostly for the the population control of these developing countries that are black and brown people but i find that the the the, the more they go into the sub-saharan african region which is where the darkest of us are you know it's not like we're not like the north africans we are the sub-saharan african countries nigeria niger mali coming all the way down to south africa so it's all these african countries that most people think about when they think about Africa, which is sub-Saharan African region, um, they, they we're getting more than anybody else money for population issues, what they call population issues. So it's um, philanthropic racism, cultural imperialism, ideological neocolonialism. Uh, these are terms that you know, I think people should be talking about terms that I think people should know about. And the more, because the more you look at it and the more you consider it and reflect on them, you find out that it's reality. It's reality with what's going on around the world today. Yeah. And um, for those who are, uh, so these, you know, these, these terms, they're, um, they're a mouthful. Uh, so for, <laughs> for those of, uh, for those listening on uh, to this show, to this particular episode, um, maybe we should, um, in our show notes, uh, Uju, maybe we should put out some like a one or two line definitions of these terms. Uh, and we'll probably take them from your book. <laughs> we'll, we'll quote them from your book. But, but, I do think, but I do think, just like you said, we need to be talking about these. We need to become familiar with these terms, right? Ideological yes. colonialism. Well, what is that? What is cultural imperialism? You know, when countries impose their what they consider as their values or their truths, right? Yes. about life and family and what a family is supposed to look like. Um, and they impose these uh, these so-called values on other countries with the force of money, which is obviously 
uh, hard to um, say no to when there are some real needs, right? Um, and when they take, uh, when they hijack humanitarian aid with abortion and birth control and all these things, you know, that's, that is what is happening in today's world. And of course, like you mentioned, at the end of the day, the victims are those who are uh, living in poverty, those who don't really have anyone to advocate for them. That's right. right. Those who live in communities where, you know, there could have been, uh, there is a war ongoing or there was a, a, a natural disaster that took place. So the the societal uh, protections are kind of all over the map, or maybe they don't even exist anymore. And then you have these philanthropists, these saviors coming into these countries with money and with, with some good things. But then at the same time, it's all strings attached, like the name of your documentary. They're coming into these into these countries with their own agenda. And then they're opening up the doors and inviting all their partners, the MSIs, the IPPFs, and all these other organizations, which then end up doing all that dirty work on the ground. Exactly. And they all come together. So these people form an army. It's literally an army. Uh, a friend of mine um, who within the pro-life movement, an older friend who has been around since the Cairo conference days. So he's been around since the night. He's doing great pro-life work now, even getting to retirement. He was telling me one time that, you know, in his, his reflections, he was just thinking back in the days of colonialism. So I'm talking anytime from 1895, you know, 1886, you know, 1890, 1901, 02, 1920s and 30s and 40s. We gained independence in Nigeria, gained independence in 1960. And around that was when many of the African countries also gained independence. But during this period of in of uh, of uh, of uh, colonialism this my friend was telling me of course how the colonial masters if i could call call them that the colonials came into african countries partitioned african countries and and many of them used the force you know they they used the force that they had they used them in the force of their military the british were superpowers at the time so they were a force to be reckoned with and uh, these days we have people, yes, they're not going around with military tanks and guns and all that and, and, and holding African countries at ransom, but they are literally an army. They are an army and they hold hands together. These are very powerful organizations that come with budgets that even exceed the budgets of many individual African countries that many of these um, third-party organizations like MSI, uh, Marie Stopes, now MSI Reproductive Choices, International Planned Parenthood Federation, sometimes the money they have access to annually uh, could actually exceed what an African country has in their budget to take care of the entire nation. So it's very worrying to see um, superpowers like this joining hands, coming in as friends and allies, as they call themselves, and and uh, stakeholders. That's the one that the African uh, of government officials use all the time. They call them stakeholders. They come in as stakeholders, and they pretend or bring bring themselves in as partners and people who want to help us to gain development or get to the point of development, uh, and yet they are an army. To be reckoned with. They of course come also strengthened by some of the pharmaceutical organizations that make their work possible. And like you've, men you've mentioned, Diamat, 
there are many good things that come from these pharmaceutical organizations. Yes, we need them for the medicines, for the drugs that we use for, you know, for, for to treat various ailments and different issues. But then these pharmaceutical organizations also know that there is a big market, potential market for things like contraceptives in the African, you know, on the African continent, in the various African countries. So they are really, there's a lot to be gained by them helping or encouraging or partnering with these um, philanthropic organizations like the Gates Foundation, the Clinton Foundation, and the, the third party uh, reproductive rights and health organizations like International Plan Parenthood Federation. So they're coming together with the Pfizer's and, and all those other organizations, and they're trying to create essentially a market from nothing, of, you know, from the Af African continent. And it's always interesting to see, and I write it, uh, I write about it very in-depthly in my book about how the African countries continue to kind of relapse each time they try to bring in all these millions and millions of contraceptives into the various African countries. They leave and then a year later or two years later, they come back and they do a review and you find out that that market is not really happening. The demand is not really there as they had hoped. So it's, it's, there is a lot going on, Matt, and I think it's all very well planned out, is all very strategic, almost like an army will do, right? Again, they're not coming in with the with the firepower of a real army, but then they are no less an army because they come in with something that people bow to and people respect and people fear, which is money. Money. Yeah. And and usually when you follow the money, <laughs> exactly. it, it, it brings you all the way up to like what you mentioned, people like or uh, philanthropists like Bill and Melinda Gates uh, and all these organizations. But the truth is, you know, these organizations like the IPPFs, Amnesty International, Women Deliver, all these organizations that promote uh, population control and, and I mean, they promote uh, depopulating the world through abortion and, and sterilization. Um, they're not fundraising all this money on their own. You know, it's not like they have fun. I mean, they do fundraise a lot. Uh, but the truth is uh, a big chunk, I would say uh, the majority of their budgets, their annual budgets, they come from you and I and from our listeners, from our tax dollars. Right. For example, Canada, the Canadian government, the UK government has spent hundreds and millions of tax dollars and they have used uh, like I said, hundreds of millions of dollars to fund these organizations. So really, uh, our hard-earned hard, our hard tax dollars are now being used to fund these organizations, which are doing all these evil things and all these evil deeds in places uh, like uh, in, 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 in various African countries and in, in Asia and South America, right? So I think that's what, if there's one thing you can get from today's show, folks, it's just Please understand. <laughs> uh, we want you to remain peaceful, of course, but please yes. get angry. Get angry. <laughs> get angry at the fact that our governments are spending our tax dollars on funding these organizations who don't care about you. They are not aligned with your values. And for yeah. the most part, they don't care about the people they claim they're helping. Okay. Exactly. I know that's, that's a bit of a harsh, uh, you know, uh, statement to make. But from our experience at the UN, we have it's seen true. we have seen time and time again 
very good conversations at the UN focused on the genuine needs of women on maternal health care, on reducing maternal mortality. We've seen these genuine conversations get completely hijacked by these activist organizations who are only there to do one thing, and that is to promote the killing of children in the womb and the sterilization of millions and millions of women worldwide. Amen to that. And that's what I'm going to say for today. <laughs> Would you feel free to add, but I just got, I got pretty heated. I just, I get that's really good. passionate about these issues because, you know, we've come a long way since that first trip to the UN, haven't we? We have. <laughs> but it's good that you are getting angry because a little righteous indignation is actually quite constructive. You know, uh, remember that all of my work or my origin started from me angrily throwing my remote control at my television for something that I heard the, the, Melinda Gates saying on, on this uh, news um, interview. So a little righteous indignation is good. And, and yes, yeah, so I absolutely support what you say. I think people should, should you know, look closer at what is going on with your tax dollars. Even if you are not yet ready to become an abortion, a, a, a pro-life activist fighting against abortion publicly, maybe because of where you find yourself or how you find yourself, but seriously, look at your government budget. Are you willing to let your government do this in your name, going to African countries, you know, instead of helping them build schools, instead of investing in the African people or the Latin American people, they're promoting abortion. Find out what your government is doing and then uh, call them call them to task and ask for some transparency and ask for a change. So all of us can really be made pro-life again by the Gates Foundation or by <laughs> organizations like the That's Gates right. Foundation. I, I almost feel like, um, you know, as much as we disagree with Melinda Gates uh, on so many issues, I if, you know, if I ever approached her, I'd probably say, you know what, Melinda, thank you. Thank you for turning <laughs> you into a pro-life activist. <laughs> Thank you, the Gates Foundation, because you made me to wake up because at that point I was still thinking I could work for the World Health Organization. Matt, I think we've had a great show today and a great discussion today. I still look forward to many more episodes to come. I hope that people will allow us to continue to bring to them these things that matter. Yes, so... and we and we will definitely be including all everything we talked about today in our show notes with some links. Uh, we will definitely link to your open letter to Melinda Gates because yeah. uh, uh, I haven't I haven't actually read that letter in a few years so it would be nice to kind of read it again and yes I did read it the first time <laughs> unlike unlike your book I did read your letter you didn't read so. my book though <laughs> that's <laughs> but, okay Matt <laughs> uh, but uh, once again we're going to be wrapping things up today so thank you so much for listening to us uh, make sure yeah make sure to email us your comments your questions any feedback you have to a focus on life podcast at gmail.com. You can go to our website, which I think will be launched this week. I'm hopeful, but if it's not up yet, just please be patient with us. But the URL to our website will be a focus on life podcast.com. And uh, be sure to follow Uju on Twitter at Obionuju on Instagram at Obionuju.ekeocha and follow Campaign Life Coalition on Twitter at Campaign Life. I believe that is everything. Did I miss anything, Uju? No, I think that's great, Matt. But I think I should mention at this point that I am hardly ever posting anything on Twitter or rather X. So I think people will find me more on Instagram. But then, yes, please um, find me on Instagram at obyanuju.ekocha. 
and then yeah keep listening and i should probably start I, have, I should get into the habit of actually referring to it as X, but I, I'm still, it's just so natural <laughs> to say Twitter. Anyhow. Um, yeah, that's, I think that's about it. Thank you all for listening and uh, closing statements from Uju. Go ahead, Uju. Well, thank you so much, dear friends, for listening. Let's just keep um, telling everyone about this podcast. Please help us get the word out there. Please help us make this podcast go viral. Yes, I did say it. Let's have focused on life go viral. And dear friends, you know that what is what matters the most is that all of us will stay focused on life. Thank you very much. Thank you.